This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Black, 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 What is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiore, and this is Blackballed. This is the second show today on what I just made up five, min- five minutes ago. will be called Double Header Monday, even though it's probably not going to happen every Monday. But um, listen, um, we have, I have a guest tonight that, um, f- full disclosure, uh, this person is the dad of one of my like, oldest and best gal pals ever. Um, we live far away from each other now, but... Um, but her dad, um, he impressed me when I found out that for, I think it was 38 years. I don't know why I remember that specific of a number. Um, he worked for like child welfare services and was like that guy, the, the, you know, someone that's actually making a difference in our society. And, um, and he became a first time author um, after, after he had retired. And that book is called Caught Between Two Devils. And that guest name is Mark Creedon. Mark, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you, James? I'm doing well. You know what's funny? I called you sir because you're my friend's dad. Because normally I'm just like, <laughs> how are you, buddy? But it didn't feel right in this context. Um, just call me Mark. Mark, um, we're going to talk about the book, but I am interested in knowing um, what it is like. Because I've wanted to be a writer since I was 11. And it's one of those occupations where you could be an accountant for 23 years and consider yourself a writer because that was like your first passion kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you put out a book after you retired from, was it child service, child welfare services? Is that what it was? Actually, I did my first 12 years was in child welfare, but then I spent most of my career after that in family services. So I was okay. the executive director of Catholic Family Service Peel Duffer in the last 20 years. Right. Um, and... A super important position. I remember Laura took me to a couple of your, I think it was your Christmas party or end of year event or something. Um, and, but you became a published author after you had retired from your career. And I just like that career path because it's unique. And it shows <laughs> one thing more than anything else, which is that your passion to be a writer never faded. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell me, was that the plan? Was that, you know, how long did it take you to figure out after you retired that this is what you wanted to sort of embark on? Uh, I knew uh, before I retired that I wanted to write this book because this book is about my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and my wife's paternal aunt and as forced labor. And I, uh, for years, every January 5th, 
my mother-in-law, Yadviga Paskavichus, would talk about the very strange circumstances of their wedding, uh, how they had to do it uh, secretly because the, the Germans had banned uh, church services. And the more I heard about this, the, the more I realized I need to know more about their whole experience as forced laborers. And so I, I did. And when I retired, the first thing I did, I always remember what Margaret Atwood said when she met somebody at a, at a, it was a doctor that was retiring. And she asked him what he was going to do. And he said he was going to write a novel. And her response was, well, when I retire, I'm going to become a brain surgeon. So I think <laughs> the, joke, the joke is that there is skill to it. It isn't just having a story or having an interest. So I went back to my alma mater, University of Toronto, and took some continuing ed courses. And I had this wonderful professor, Alexander Leggett, uh, who uh, basically I took the, the courses on how to write a novel. And uh, I learned a lot from that. And uh, so, uh, so I had planned it. That's a smart move as a person who uh, struggles with structure. <laughs> you know, like, like, like you can be taught so many different things, but things like grammar and things like uh, the structure of a well-paced novel and all that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, that's the, that's the blue collar stuff that writers need to do. Um, you know, uh, but recognizing that and going back to school as well. I mean, you put a lot of passion into this book. Um, I talked to you and Laura about those those moments, um, you know, at Christmas or whatever it was that where where your mother in law would talk about these stories. And, you know, you could almost Laura says that she used I, I believe she said this, that it used to make her like teary eyed almost because it was just she was told as if it just happened. There's always something really interesting when people talk about experiences that they had during the war, whether it's military or non-military because the generalization is that people don't like to talk about that stuff mm -hmm. because it's painful mm -hmm. um and but the, the the power and the energy behind the people that do open up about that is incredible mm -hmm. and um was it did you have to pry it out of her or was she happy to tell it i guess my question would be chris's uh, grandfather and her uh, grand aunt never spoke about the war in all the time I knew them. But Jadwiga, Chris, Laura's um, grandmother, uh, she did. And as I say, every time it was their anniversary on January 5th, she would tell this story. So I asked if we could write a whole book about it. She was kind of intrigued. She was saying, why would anybody want to know about it? And it was kind of, I think it was ambivalent. In some ways, it was private. She didn't want to share it. But in other ways, uh, she recognized that um, there was something people could learn from it. Uh, and and I think the more we talked, uh, well, by the time uh, I was starting to write the story and, and I would interview her, uh, she was living in a, in a senior's home. She was blind and she was in a wheelchair. And we used to have her come out to our place, you know, a couple of times a week and we'd go and visit lots of times. But when she was alone, mostly what she was doing was living in her memories. So she really respected the fact and liked the fact that somebody was interested in her memories. And I convinced her that not only were her memories something good to be shared with the family, but that people in Canada could learn a lot from what her experiences were. Because I think, frankly, you would know this, most Canadians know very little about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. If they know anything about the Second World War, it's usually the Western Front. But 80% of casualties the Germans experienced were in the Eastern Front. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, 
can you give us a breakdown of the story so that what people um you know can see because because i found it timely the reason the reason why i wanted to have you on the podcast now is because of what was happening with russia and ukraine mm-hmm. I, I don't know why i thought i thought of just your book immediately and it's not because it's exactly the same or anything but we're having a similar i guess mm-hmm. the similar parallels might be just the way that it's like russian imperialism is that the correct uh, absolutely you know? absolutely uh, as Mr. So can Putin, you give us a breakdown of the book and then maybe uh, afterwards um, like we can talk about the parallels between what's happening sure. now and what happened then? Well, well, the book, as I say, is about uh, Chris's mother and father and her paternal aunt. And they were just ordinary people living in, uh, two of them are living in Lithuania and one living in Poland. And uh, when Jadwiga and Antanas um, finally got married, uh, then in 1944, in April 1944, they were taken forcibly by the Germans and sent to Elbing, Germany as forced labor. And there was nowhere to run at first. Where are we going to go? The Germans controlled thousands of kilometers around them. But by February of 1945, the Soviet army, the Red Army, was pressing on Elbing. And they sensed that the Germans were going to finally collapse. And they wanted to get out of there before the Soviets took over because they had lived the first two years of the war under Soviet control. And they knew as bad as the Germans were, the Russians were worse. So they stole a truck from the Wehrmacht, stole diesel, stole tools, and together with seven other prisoners of war and two German women that wanted to get out of town, plus the children of the two German women, and they started heading for Bavaria because Antanas correctly figured out that Bavaria would be liberated by the Americans or the Canadians or the French or the British and not by the Soviets. And so the story is really about them. What is the math behind? Because that's a, I wouldn't have known that. That seems very strategic. Like, I like, w- what was the math behind her deciding that that would be um, liberated by the Allies? I, you know, I honestly don't know, and neither did Jadwiga. This was a decision that Antanas made, and he was quite mm-hmm. private. But there were lots of other Lithuanians in the camp. Some of the German guards uh, were friendly with them. Not all the Germans were bestial. Some of them were quite good. And mm-hmm. so basically piecing this piece of information together, they sensed that the, the, the Soviets were more to the northeast and that uh, Bavaria being more to the southwest would be uh, more more favorable to, to, to attend to. So they stole the truck. Um, like you don't want to, I, I don't, you know what? I don't know how it works. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm a writer and I'm interviewing a writer and I'm like, do I ask him to expand on the you, plot you line anymore? Than that? I'm not worried about it. Well, because it's historical fiction and because the, the, uh, story comes from, um, your wife's family. Like, I, I think I, I just, I'm, I feel like I'm sitting at the table with you and Laura and, and, and your mother-in-law <laughs> and your mom and your wife and, and just like listening to the story. So my next question would be, if I was in that setting would be, what happened after they stole the truck? <laughs> How well, did they get they, through this, this, and where did they was, end up? This was February in one of the coldest uh, winters uh, in record in Europe. Uh, so they had several problems. They had to not only avoid SS uh, you know, stops uh, and checkpoints, they had to find shelter, they had to find food, they had to find diesel. So they were constantly, uh, they were lucky the first night they stumbled on a farm that had been evacuated by the farmers because they were afraid of the Soviet, the Red Army was going to come there. So they found food, they found diesel and everything. But this was something they constantly had to work on. There was one time when they were trying to go up a steep hill in this old truck and it wouldn't make it. And they had like all, all, all 10 of them behind pushing this truck to get it up. 
Well, Antanas was doing his best to keep it on the road. So, uh, and of course, some nights they had to sleep overnight in the truck when it was like minus 20 degrees. So they really had to learn how to work together as a team, how to trust one another uh, and rely on their faith that they could make it. Um, and so let's let's just, first of all, a lot of people don't know, um, because probably because we don't really learn much about it in school, about the, the Russian uh, presence and then atrocities after uh, Germany was defeated. Um, there's a there's a pretty famous book I think called Woman in Berlin, and it's mm-hmm. written by an anonymous author, talking about how um, how women how German women were treated when mm-hmm. once Russia was um, in charge of the streets and everything, and it was just brutal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and 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 it goes to that old adage where there's there's no good guys in war often. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm. Just, Obviously, in some cases, they're a little bit different, but there's always, you know, the, the war is bloody and war is awful and war is mm-hmm. really bad. And it's just like, even if you're on the side that's supposed to be the good guys, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. Um, do, so what parallels do you see, if any, um, between the conflict between Russia and Ukraine right now and and that kind of um, struggle that you describe in your book, Caught Between Two Devils? There are tremendous parallels. First of all, uh, when the Russians were you know, pushing the Germans back, uh, the Nazis, that was great. But they had full intention of occupying many of the countries that they freed, as opposed to the Americans, the British or French, where they liberated uh, countries, but then left them to run their own democracies. This was not what the Soviet had in mind. They just wanted to extend their empire. And that's certainly what's happening in Ukraine today. Also, you mentioned about the atrocities. Well, we, we've heard of the atrocities that the that the current Russians are doing with you know, torture, killing, raping of women. Uh, after, as as the latter days of the war, you could find some German women that had been raped by a British or a Canadian or an American soldier. But if they were caught, if they were found out, they would be court-martialed and imprisoned for it. On the other hand, in uh, Eastern Germany, you were hard-pressed to find a, a German adult woman that hadn't been raped by a Soviet soldier because it was coming as an order from the top. Stalin w- was using it as a weapon of war, and these and Putin is using it as a weapon of war. Yeah, it's um, it's so brutal. I can't even wrap my. It's hard for me to even fathom, like like to, to weaponize that kind of horrific act. Um, and that we haven't apparently. When I say we, I don't even mean the royal we. And then some militaries still haven't learned that lesson somehow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like we like to talk. <laughs> I like to talk about how the world's really, you know, um, come a long way, but in, in many ways it hasn't. Um, did, um, after, after you've, you knew the story and you were plotting out the book and you, and, you, and you figured it out, was there any difficulties trying to figure out where you would end it? I know this is a bizarre question, but <laughs> I hate endings question. more than more than anything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, like ending obviously. newspaper articles or yeah. haikus. I don't like it. <laughs> You know, it, it, I feel like there could be a uh, like everything's a choose your own adventure. Yeah. You know, in a way. Yeah. No, I, it, it's funny. I was struggling with that myself because I've read lots of novels that I liked the novel, but didn't like the ending. Um, but I wanted it to be on a hopeful and optimistic note. And uh, I always remember one of the other stories that Yadviga would talk about is when they first uh, got to uh, Union Station in Toronto and they were met by Maria who had been in Canada for a year already working at St. Joseph's Hospital, just basically cleaning, washing dishes. She had a flat for them ready for them to, to move into. 
and how excited they were. They had like about $25 between Antonis Jadwig and, and Chris's brother, Peter, was two years old and he was there too. But just to be in a free country, be in a country that wasn't bombed out, be in a country that was hopeful, be in a country that was on the rebound, uh, Antonis literally got down on the ground on the grass around Union Station and kissed the grass. And they were just so thrilled to be there. So that's how I ended it. Imagine, imagine not being able to tell that your story is an epic journey and an, like amazingly interesting. Because uh, I had a brother-in-law whose dad was in the Hitler Youth. Mm. And um, he described it like, you know, the SS or whoever would come to your house, to a German citizen's house or whatever, and ask you and sort of like, and staring at you like, will your children be a part of the Hitler Youth? And basically everyone said yes, because if they didn't, then <laughs> then there was, there you would pay. In one way or another, you would pay, even if you were a German citizen. So they went to um, Prague to be stationed at the Hitler Youth Camp there. And when the Allies started to win, the kids at this camp were abandoned by the soldiers that were sent there to run it. Hmm. And my um, my brother-in-law's dad, his uh, brother, is it his brother? Yeah, his brother and sister then walked from Prague to Berlin when they were like 11 wow. and 10 or something and lived off of the root cellar food that they mm. could sneak. Mm -hmm. And it was always salami and cheese mm. for whatever reason. It was always Not salami and cheese. Bad. And when they, yeah, you know what? I, <laughs> I've lived in bachelor apartments where it was ramen noodles and bread. So, you know, but they, they got back to Germany and the allies had like the city was basically leveled and they went to their street and there was one house left standing and it was their house and they went to the back and their parents were celebrating the birthday of the sister who just arrived with salami and cheese wow you know what i mean and and so human it's it, i guess i'm asking about uh humanizing people that are part mm -hmm. of the side that is the aggressor because sometimes um i'm reading things from media um about you know sometimes i think all we have is language it's mathematical it should be distributed in an equal way because that's what else do we have but language <laughs> and it feels like um russia's government doing the heinous things that they're doing i don't see much of a of a uh, effort to sort of separate the people from the government maybe not because one of the things i tried very hard in the book was to separate the people from the government um one of the main characters in the book uh, is is uh, Sergeant Private, sorry, Private Bauer, who was one of the guards at the camp they were in, but eventually became the boyfriend of Chris's aunt. Uh, he is one of the ones who got them papers to allow them so that when they're out and they hit a checkpoint, they wouldn't be returned to the camp and, as prisoners again. Uh, false papers, of course. Uh, he uh, was a wonderful kind of person. Uh, you know, they had a German priest when they got to Bavaria that took them in and introduced them to the, uh, the to the mayor and got them jobs and places to live. Uh, you know, when you talk about the Hitler Youth, well, uh, actually, uh, Dachau, the first inhabitants of Dachau were Germans, Germans that resisted Hitler. Uh, the only time that they actually got stopped by a German patrol when they escaped from the camp was actually by a group of Hitler Youth. They got pulled over, and they thought they were really in big trouble. And when their leader came over, they realized he was probably 15, and his wow. and his fellow troops were like 14-year-olds. Uh, you know, and they actually felt sorry for them. So is um, wow. and 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 for that matter, 
even though the Russians come out of the book looking even worse than the Germans, there were some good Russian characters. There's the one that, you know, brought a message to Yadviga from Antanas. Uh, there was, uh, you know, the, the, all, all the Russians weren't bad. And, and of course, there was Pavel, who was a prisoner himself, who was a prisoner of war uh, of the Germans because of Operation Barbarossa. And he was, you know, uh, one of the colleagues of, of uh, Yadviga. So there's, there's good and bad on every side. Yeah, and I bet when you were writing it, especially because the story is about um, your wife's family, that um, was there a stress attached to making sure the accuracy was like beyond reproach? Like, I mean, obviously, the obvious answer is yes, but it's historical fiction because certain things have to be altered just to like flow the story and sure, everything. Sure, sure. But how obsessed were you with getting everything as accurate as you possibly could? Because I would be going crazy because I'm not that <laughs> organized. You know? Well, I resist being obsessive compulsive, uh, mm. but... Most, I would say 90% of the things I talked about, Yadviga and Tana Samaria, were accurate. Um, where I strayed and why I made it a novel rather than a memoir, and, which gave me more latitude, uh, is because of the colleagues they had in the camp. Some of them are Ukrainian, some of them were Belarus. So one of them, as I mentioned, was Russian. One of them was actually German. One of the, another one was, ironically, American. Uh, Yadviga couldn't really remember too many like names and, and details. So I took as much information from Yadviga as I could about these people. But then Antanas Shaleka, who's a well-known author, has written some great books. He told me uh, that he says, you might think you know a lot about World War II, but you only know about the Western Front. And he gave me this terrific bibliography of books about the Eastern Front. So I learned a lot about, uh, you know, quintessential stories from the Ukraine, from Belarus, from Russia, from Germany. And so when I was doing characters, I would write their backstories, being faithful to things that had actually happened. Okay. So in, with those characters, I strayed. With the, the main three characters, I stayed pretty close to, to the reality. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Um. Were you a writer when you were younger, like in college and high school and stuff like that? Did you have any ex like tangible experience to speak of before you embarked on your not, career? Not, 
Not really. Uh, I mean, English was always a good subject for me, as was history. Uh, but um, I guess the closest I got was oh, about 10 years before I retired. I heard a story uh, from someone uh, with regard to a person had a strange disorder of lacking testosterone. And this person grew to be like about almost seven feet tall, but very skinny. And he was working in a laboring kind of job and he couldn't keep up. And uh, so he started taking doses of testosterone and it did everything he wanted. He got to be big and strong and all kinds of things. But then before he'd always been a gentle kind of person. And all of a sudden in the pubs, instead of being a passive observer, what was going on, he started getting into fights and he almost crippled. Well, he did cripple one person. And then he had demanded the doctor take him off the testosterone. So this story, when I was writing this, would be during Christmas holidays. And Chris would be saying, we got to go see our, our friends, uh, you know, now. And I'd say, just a minute, just a minute. Because all of a sudden, it was like... You're such sure. a natural writer, Mark. Yeah. It, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. Just relax. It was like I was watching the most interesting movie I'd ever seen. And I was creating it. It was, it was I could alter it. It was like a, a really interesting kind of experience. And when I was writing about uh, Chris's parents, um, I'm an extrovert. And I thought, it's going to be really interesting to be all alone and in my office just writing this thing for hours. Uh, maybe this isn't going to be so good. I loved it because I felt like I was there with Antana, Shadriga, and Maria. And I just couldn't be seen. But I was there in the room when they were having their discussions, when they were having their struggles, when they were having to do all these things. And at a time when they were much younger than I ever met them. Because when I met them, they were in their 50s already. Now I'm writing about them when they're in their 20s. So it was, yeah. it, it was never boring. It was never lonely. I loved it. That's a, that's actually really good because you're, you're embarking. It doesn't even sound like it's intentional, which is even better. But you're embarking on almost like a creative visualization strategy to, mm -hmm. to immerse yourself in this story. And like it, it really worked. I'm kind of jealous. I'm a little pissed off that you made it look so easy because you, you know, I, I know you went to school, but like, like you know, you, you nailed it on your first go. And I'm just well, like, James, if it makes you feel any better, I remember my yeah. first class and Alexander always said it was great at getting the other students to contribute. And so you'd have an assignment and you'd write certain something and bring it. And I remember I thought I had such a, everybody else in the class was in their 20s and I was in my 60s mm -hmm. and they were all better writers than me. But I had a story. I really had this fantastic story. I had a better story than them. They had better writing skills. Uh, but I was there to get the writing skills. So first time I presented it, I thought I was going to get the Pulitzer Prize. I thought I was going to get a standing over. <laughs> I love the confidence. I love it. There was, there was, yeah, a little overconfident. But, but the, um, the, there was a sort of stunned silence until finally one of the students said, well, you know, it's a little dense. I had no idea what they meant by that. But as it turned out, what they meant was, I had been great at putting in the plot, but I hadn't described what the characters looked like. I hadn't described what the what the surroundings were like. I hadn't got into much dialogue. I hadn't got into the character development. I was just plot oriented. So basically through those courses, I learned a lot. And one of the things you have to learn is people, when they're giving you, uh, you, you know, criticism, it's coming from a loving place. They're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you. And so as long as you take it with that in mind, it really helped me to become a better writer. I like criticism better than throwaway compliments, you know? Yeah. Especially if yeah. someone that I'm like close, not someone that I'm close. I, I tend not to send anything to anyone that I'm really close to because it's a trap. Because, you know, like, <laughs> you know, but there's nothing worse than whoever you send it to going, it's great. Yeah, good job. 
I'd rather know uh, it's a little disjointed when you're um, executing the rising action in Poland, and I think you really need to work on that. That would be like, okay, yes, thank you, <laughs> you know, which is hilarious because I can't take criticism in virtually any other aspect of my life except for the one thing I care about the most, right? Well, that's good. Yeah, are you um, are you already working on anything next? Like, are yeah. you going to continue? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I keep getting distracted because I'm getting certain uh, other things that I'm involved in. I do a lot of volunteer work on various committees. But um, I, what I'm trying to focus on is a book about my parents and their and their parents. And it's called Country Mouse, City Mouse, simply because my father came from the country and my mother was here and born here in Toronto. And if you look at Canadian history in the first, say, 50 years or of the 20th century, the four biggest uh, things that affected the average person was the First World War, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, and the Second World War. In my family, uh, the two parts of the family, the McDonough's and the Creedons, uh, were directly affected by all of those things. So yeah, which I'm, is a really small time frame when you think about it. Like, it's like, it would be like uh, all of that stuff happening from 1990 to now or something like that, right? Like yeah. Oh, yeah. It was that, that is a lot. Like, we're still getting over 9-11. And, and I'm not saying that to be cheeky. I, I you know, I, I, I'm, you know, we're, there's still, let's, let's put it in a more sophisticated way. There, there's still reverberations from that day that are felt now in policy, in societal mm -hmm. fabrics and how we mm -hmm. get along with people that mm -hmm. aren't like us or whatever. Um, two world wars, the Spanish flu, and what was the last one? The Great Depression. The Great Depression. That is like a lot of stress packed into to 30, yeah. 35 years. Oh, yeah. Um, are you, is this a niche? Are you writing about people's parents? Cause that could be a good jump off. To <laughs> well, they're my parents, but, yeah. but because I know I, they say writers should write about what you know, at least at the beginning. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Spanish flu, for example, uh, I mean, COVID-19 has been terrible, but the Spanish flu, there were 500 million people got it worldwide at a time when the world's population was only 1.5 billion people. So it was basically oh, wow. one out of three people, and lots of them died. They didn't have uh, vaccines like we have now. They did social distancing. They did a lot of other things. But my uh, grandfather on my father's side, he got the Spanish flu. And then he also, while he was fighting it off, he contracted tuberculosis of the spine oh. from the milk of the cows that they, that, they were, that they raised. The reason that nobody else in the family got it is because their own immune systems were strong and they fought it off. He was fighting the Spanish flu. His immune system was compromised. He got this horrible disease, tuberculosis of the spine, which basically ate away his spine. Was that because there wasn't pasteurized? Is it like raw milk? That's correct. That That's correct. It was, it was a, a liberal government in the 1930s that finally passed legislation to pasteurize milk. That's that's interesting. There's still people that fight for that. Like it's the greatest fight ever. Yeah. Like there's raw there's raw milk like oh, yeah. activists. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I met one once a few years ago around here. I live in Killaloo near Barry's Bay yeah, in the Madawaska yeah. Valley. And I met this gentleman who is uh I was doing a radio show for a small amount of time at the local radio station. And he 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 like uh we were sitting um eating or drinking coffee at my friend Peter Benner's uh, building that he owned. He passed away last year. Rest in peace, Peter. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he slides this pamphlet onto the table. It's all serious, right? It's really mm -hmm. serious space. <laughs> and I look at it, and it's like, the government is oppressing us by mm -hmm. not allowing us to drink raw milk. And I'm like, 
Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that is the most first world problem I've ever heard. But but also it wasn't true. You can drink the raw milk as much as you want. You can't sell it. That's right. So he didn't even know his own his own rights. Yeah, his own issue. Um, yeah, but I think, that's, with raw, uh, I think with raw milk is if you're, if you're really good at it and careful and, and do a lot of the right things, it can be safe. But if you start doing it province wide, there's going to be lots of mistakes, and there's going to be like lots does of boiling problems. really take away the flavor of raw milk? Is that? Is, I'm just trying to figure I, out what. The, I don't know. You know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Why don't why aren't you an expert in raw milk, Mark? What's going on? I thought you were preparing for the podcast. No, um, now we talked a little bit. About, I only want to talk about this because we talked a little bit about how um, uh, this was your first book. I'm currently writing my first book for a publisher, mm-hmm. and and how the um, the Canadian market is really weird to me. But and and what constitutes a bestseller is also very odd to me. It's it's mm-hmm. a pretty low number. I think it's like 500 or something like that. That's correct. Um, you may not know the answer to this. I certainly don't know the answer to this, but is our, um, industry, I guess you want to call it the, the, you know, the fiction and nonfiction book industry in Canada, 500 for a bestseller seems condescending. (laughs) Like (laughs) it, it doesn't feel right. It's like, you know, it's like, um, it's like getting five runs at the beginning of a baseball game because you aren't good as the other people. I, I just, you know, I don't want to, I'm not speaking of the industry. I know almost nothing about it, even though I'm, I'm a publisher about to be published writer, but did you, was there any, here, let me ask you this. Was there anything about the industry itself that you found, like, I don't want you to name names of anybody that made you mad or whatever, but was there anything that was like built in frustrating about the process with, you know, well, the publisher? It, it, one, one of the things I found strange. Can you throw your publisher under the bus for me? I'm just kidding. Shout out no, to Iguana my, Books. You it, know? No, Iguana, Iguana <laughs> Books has been great to me. Uh, yeah. it, but one of the things I found interesting was it was harder to find an agent than it was to find a publisher. Not that it was easy. I, I must have written to about 70 different publishers before I got two uh, positive responses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought getting an agent wouldn't be that difficult, uh, and then they would help me to find a publisher, but it turned out to be a, a, an impossible task for me. Yeah, I, I, I've never even thought of the concept of uh, finding an agent. <laughs> I just, don't don't bother. I, I don't, yeah, like exact, exactly. I, you know, I don't really like. I have a bunch of new. I have experience in in nothing that has anything to do with writing books. So, um, I don't know what an agent would actually do for me. But I'm told by by writers, um, published authors, and and whatnot that um, that you be kind. And I think you did this. I think you're a perfect example of this. Actually, um you treat it almost like an entrepreneurial endeavor. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you, you took training, right? In a sense, you, you mm-hmm. upped your skill set by going and taking that course. Cause I asked my, um, a friend of mine, who's a fairly well-known, um, journalist and author. Um, I, I call him and I'm like, yeah, I'm having a lot of trouble here. Um, do you have any advice? Because uh, I just want to like throw my computer against the wall, and the publisher is real. The publisher is telling me his vision, and I'm not sure if I want to do his vision. He's like, "Are you um, when you talk to the publisher? Are you are you making sure that you follow what his vision is to make sure you give him what what he wants?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I am." He's like, "Yeah, don't do that ever." So his his advice is like nod politely to the publisher then do it your own way. And if he likes it, he'll just think it was his, you know, leadership yeah. that got you there. But what do you care? <laughs> so, 
you know, it's a, well, it's an interesting industry. Well, um, well, you certainly have to be true to yourself, but I, not only did I take three courses at University of Toronto, but I also shared the work with uh, uh, Alexander Leggett, my professor, I actually hired her to be my, I never realized there was different kinds of editing until I did this. I always thought editing was just looking at grammar and spelling and things like that. Well, that's the last form of editing. The first one is basically strategic. Uh, you know, are, are you focusing Pace on the right and flow and all that? Yeah. Is the book too long? Is it too short? Is it, you know, do you want to develop this more or that less? You know, kind of. The second one is more to do with things like more writing styles. You, 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 you know, you, you got to work on your what verbs you're using. You got to develop do better character development. Your character, your dialogue needs to be improved. And only the last form is you know the grammar, the spelling, that kind of thing. So I I got it run by. Well, first of all, Alexander Leggett really helped me a lot at the, at the beginning. Hmm. And then Antonis Shaleka, he read it, and he was so funny, because it was like Alexander was like your, your uh, stereotypical mother-love. She, she would just reinforce the positive things and very gently point out the constructive criticism and everything like that. Yeah. Antonis was your uh, stereotypical uh, stern father-love. He read the book three times, he did for me. And then he said to me, he says, most of this book is bullshit. He says, but that's a real... <laughs> That's a real gold, gold internals that could be developed. The book was like, I forget how many long, it was about 400 pages long. He said, the first thing you got to do is cut it in half, which I did, I got, almost. I got it to 230 pages. But he was really good. And then he gave me some very detailed kind of things. Then I took it to Jan Zaverman, and she gave me, she was the one, if you notice my book, that I have little blurbs of history at the beginning. To yes. Set what, where, where, what's happening. I liked that. It was and helpful. It yeah. was so helpful because... As I said, when I was in high school, my two best subjects were English and history, and I, I actually had the top marks in my high school, and they were going to give me an award for in that, but I had to choose which one. And it was a hard choice because I didn't know which one I preferred. And it's it kept showing itself up in the novel. So finally somebody had to give me the, the advice that you're writing a story here. The history is important, but the story comes first. And she gave me the idea. She said, if you really want to get some context history, the best way is through what the the characters say or do, but there's some things that characters didn't know, but it would be good mm. for the audience to know, the readers. Oh. So she says, I'll let you write two or three sentences at the beginning of each chapter, but it's got to be every chapter, not just one or two chapters, every chapter. And I, I did that, except I violated a couple of times. Sometimes it was four or five sentences, but, yeah. but that really helped me. A lot of people, especially people that didn't necessarily know a lot about the World War II history, found that really good because it contextualized things. Yeah, I was just going to say the contextualization that that would um, carry with it would also be so much easier or you would be more willing to digest it because it's not in the form of a footnote that's in tiny print that, on the bottom of the page. Yeah, that's Which right. I avoid. I don't even look at that sometimes. No, no there's no footnotes. <laughs> yeah, no, so this is like a, a really good format. Um, I, listen, when, uh, we're going to wrap up, but I, I'm um, I I love talking to you first of all because I I remember um, when Laura told me that you wrote a book, and I was just like, it it made me feel um, like hopeful that one day I would be able to write one too. Like you were kind of inspiring, the, the, like this the story, and I know that like your family is like in the best way, like a, a loving, emotional kind of family, like and um, the the specialness. <laughs> 
So I'm a writer, but you know what I mean? Like that, that attached <laughs> to the story because, because of where it came from and stuff. Like it's a, it's, it's almost tactile. Like when, when, mm-hmm. when I hear you talk about it, when I hear Laura talk about it in, uh, in the past, it was just like, you, you've, you've taken almost like the family tradition of hearing about this amazing story and you, um, immortalized it in a way like it's mm-hmm. there now for other people to read um that is the kind of rewarding part of writing that is, mm-hmm. is also very rare you know mm-hmm. like usually you know the work that you feel the the best about isn't necessarily the personal work in fact it's almost mm-hmm. always the opposite mm-hmm. you know the old man in the sea i, I mean even hemingway didn't like that book <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> and, and and it's just like you know so um yeah, it's 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 amazing because you worked really hard. Um, you're you're fortunate, but you're you captained your own ship. You know, I think um, I think that you could you could teach like a master class or do a TED talk about <laughs> about <laughs> getting your book out there and being confident about it because yeah, James, a lot of writers know, don't have the humility to go back to school even. You know, James, you know, you mentioned Laura. One of the best rewards I ever had uh, was that the, the kids would all hear about the story about the wedding, but that's all they'd hear. I knew there was many other stories behind that story, and and I therefore put it together in the novel. And uh, my very first reading was in in, in, a, in a parish hall. There was about 50, 60 people, mostly my friends, that were there. But Laura got up and said to me a personal thank you. She said, for putting this together so that I now know the history of these people that I knew and loved all my life, but never knew much about them before they ever came to Canada. And wow. thank you for doing it. And I can see the emotion too, because like a, it's almost like spiritual generational telephone, you mm-hmm. know, like your mother-in-law's like telling you the story, the matriarch of the family is telling you a story. Yeah. You're the conduit delivering it to, you know, the next generation. I think I, I, it's, it's so, it, I've never really thought to myself, I think the process of this book is just as beautiful as the book itself. And I think that's really what I'm saying. Oh, thank you. No problem. So um, I would like to have you back when you're done your story about the testosterone, man. Is, are you still working on that? Oh, I, oh I've done the testosterone one. It's a short oh, story. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It got published on, let's see, it was on a British one. Um, what was it called? Uh, huh. I can't remember the... What the what the what the uh, the, the site was? Um, oh, that's fiction, okay. Well, well I'll, fiction, I'll put a link in. Yeah. Fiction on the web. Dot uk. Uh, ca or not ca. Dot com. And so, and what do you and do you have an expectation of when your next um, project might be done? <laughs> I love uh, I love asking a writer that. Uh, you're I'm in a, a work in progress. Tell me exactly when you're going to be finished. It's like I, uh, I'd I say know. probably three years. <laughs> three it years. Took eh? Years to write caught between two devils. So. Between the interviewing, well, every, well, five years to write it and then another year to find a publisher. Well, as you say, the book is called uh, Caught Between Two Devils. Um, my library ordered it as well. Um, I think yes. anyone out there that is interested in the conflict right now um, from uh, through a historical lens would want to read this. I also live in a very Polish area. And um, yes. when you did that talk at the library with us, there was a lot of, I had a lot of people coming up af- after that. Um, mm. telling me that they, oh, that it was totally unexpected to hear from something like this. And um, yeah, so I think uh, I think it's timely and uh, it, I think it's great work. And because it comes from such a good, um, pure emotional place, um, it, you know, it resonates on the pages. So I encourage anyone out there uh, to hit Amazon and uh, to find his book. 
James, and, is, uh, if I can just put it in, it's simply people can get it on Amazon.ca uh, books. They can also yes. get it in your library. They can also get it in the Toronto Public Library, and they mm -hmm. can also get it in the Burlington Public Library. Well, um, we love it at our library. It's a really uh, popular book. Like people, oh, have, you know, it's one of those good. books where it's like, you know, we, we've had to replace the due date slip once already. So that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Mark Creighton, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, James. Okay. You have a good night, too. Um, Mark Creighton, I, I, um, he's such a good guy. And um, I kind of look up to him because of uh, the story of how he, he got his book out. So I, I was happy to have him as a guest. And uh, tomorrow on Blackballed at 6.30, I don't think I'm going to do too many of these double headers because I am mentally just com completely wiped out. Um, but tomorrow we have Max Fawcett. Thursday we have Steve Pakin. And then next week um, on the 24th, we have this gentleman, Linwood Barclay. His new book is called Take Your Breath Away. And in between, I don't know, maybe some rappers. I'm working on it. Um, but we'll see you then. And thanks for joining us. Hey listeners, I'm Christy and I'm Melissa and this is Buried Motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. It's such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.